Welcome to the EIE podcast. I'm your host, Laura Rumbly, and in this episode, number 54 in our series, we're turning our attention to Europe's research and innovation landscape and agenda. In parallel with the European education area, there is, of course, a European research area. The ERA represents the European Union's ambition to create a single borderless market for research, innovation, and technology across the EU. Research and innovation are enormously important for the vitality of individual higher education institutions, national economies, and the wider European and global context. And the many different strategies and funding schemes dedicated to advancing the R&I agenda in Europe can be a lot to keep up with. Luckily, our guest in this episode basically dedicates himself full-time to that very task. Florin Zubashku is Executive Director at Science Business, which is a network and online source of news and analysis focused specifically on bridging the gaps in information and engagement between industry, research, and policy in the research and innovation space. If you're interested in Horizon Europe, science diplomacy, the role of the European University Alliances in Europe's RNI ecosystem, and more, please continue listening. Thank you so much for joining us, Florin. Really nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'd like to begin with a bit of a personal question for you, a little bit of a, a background query. I'd love to know how you first got involved in thinking about or following research and innovation policy in Europe. Um, what is it that excites you about this topic and gets you up recharged every day to help your readers understand more about this area? Well, I, I wasn't exactly, it wasn't exactly a deliberate choice, uh, but somehow I always found myself at this weird intersection between media, science, and politics. When I started working for Science Business back in 2014, research and innovation was a very narrow niche, including in Brussels. But over the past few years, science and technology have gained a lot more political significance. So now it permeates most policy areas in the EU. And we've seen that uh, with the COVID pandemic, with the current energy crisis and climate change, the EU is pushing also for the development of a new generation of semiconductors. So it becomes more independent from China. Then there's the rise of artificial intelligence and quantum computing. Also in the defense sector, the EU wants to invest in research innovation to improve its military capabilities. The EU uh, relies heavily on its science power to achieve strategic autonomy or technological independence from other parts of the world. And here uh, we're talking about China mostly. I guess what I'm trying to say here is science and technology have moved to the center of a lot of political debates. The transition to the green energy, it's a very much it's very much a question of technology. Um, the, the issue of the defense is becoming an issue of, of technology related to technology. And of course, these new tools, we don't know yet whether we can extract some economic value out of quantum computing, for example, but we know mm -hmm. it's something that we have to that Europe needs to invest in. Uh, so there was a lot of political commitment to that as well. And I think that thanks to the war in Ukraine, there's there's a big question about establishing new rules for international science cooperation and, and for science uh, diplomacy. So that's another political area where science has gained a, a central role. 
you know, the war in Ukraine has changed that a lot, you know, the science, the international science cooperation landscape as well. And governments are more cautious of letting scientists work together with colleagues in authoritarian countries. So as you can see, there's, we're in this very complex and delicate international context uh, where science has gained a lot of importance. And I, I think we're at the start of this interesting technological battle between democratic technology and non-democratic technology. Oh, that's a very interesting way to think about, you know, applying terminology to the word technology. Yeah, I, I think we're only at, in the beginning of that. Tensions are rising in, in Asia as well, in the South China Sea. So we don't know yet where, where, where this will go. But that's that's my hunch. Yeah. So it, it, very interesting for you to see your own field or this area that you've been watching become increasingly more complex and high stakes, it sounds like, it really quite rapidly, even in the last several years. Exactly. And maybe I am looking at this from, uh, maybe I'm a bit biased uh, because my background is in uh, political science. So I studied political science before becoming a journalist and before taking this interest in uh, in science. So to what I said in the beginning that I'm all, I was always uh, at this weird intersection between media, science, and politics, maybe that, that influences the way I see these things. So because of that background and because of the work that you're, you, you have been doing, it seems like you might be a good person for me to ask this very broad, unfairly broad question that I'd like to ask you, which is how would you characterize, if you, if you were forced to do so, the state of or the health of research and innovation in Europe today? Could you paint some big, broad brush strokes for us around what you see as some of the strengths of the R&D innovation context in Europe and what you perceive as some of its key weaknesses? Well, Europe definitely has some of the world's best universities. It has some of the world's best research labs. And you know, CERN is the prime example, but there are others. DESI in Germany, Eli in the Czech Republic, ALBA in Spain, and so on. Uh, so there are a lot of uh, research facilities that are very good. We have world-class research. We produce, so Europe produces a lot of excellent science. And more recently, we see more and more interest from the private sector, from venture capitals to invest in bringing those scientific results into the market and, and making a, an economic success of it. In, in, in terms of weaknesses, if we refer to the EU, then of course, the fact that there are 27 different jurisdictions, especially in higher education, of course, that doesn't help. It's, I think it's part of the package. That's what the EU is about. It's a question of finding a way to thrive in this sea of diversity and, and conflicting and clashing uh, interests. But I think the, the main weakness uh, in the EU is this problem of uneven performance. So there are studies by the European Commission that show, um, and it's a process that they do, do every year. Uh, there are reports that they put out every year to measure the performance of EU countries in terms of research innovation. Uh, and those reports show that many countries, especially in Eastern Europe, are lagging behind the rest uh, of the block in terms of research innovation performance. 
And of course, that has immediate effects on participation levels in EU funding programs because of that structural difference. You, you see that countries in Western Europe get more out of the Horizon Europe research program. But we also see an impact in terms of economic development. So economic development is related to investment in R&D. And uh, of course, countries in Eastern Europe, because of their communist past and their difficulty in, in adapting to a new economic system over the past 30 years, have yeah, have been slower to recognize the importance of investing in uh, research um, and innovation. So this uneven performance is partly due to poor investment mm -hmm. and a lack of recognition at, at the highest political levels and, and lack of reforms. Of course, there are countries that have made significant progress. Uh, and we're seeing announcements coming out on this topic from Hungary, from Romania, from Poland, from Slovenia. So over the past few years, they've all tried to launch various reforms to boost the funding that can be made available for research and development. So things are, are kind of moving in the right direction, but the differences are still very significant. So um, at least in my mind at the moment, the big question is how can the EU achieve all its ambitious goals in terms of technological development and sovereignty while half the continent is trailing behind? So there's a lot of resources and capacity that could be better used and better integrated in the EU research innovation ecosystem. But I think everyone needs to pay a bit more attention to that. Uh, science stakeholders should get involved in that debate. Policymakers should pay more attention, for example, when devising the next EU budget or the next EU uh, research program and so on. Uh, and it's it's a topic that we plan to cover more and more at Science Business. Uh, Fantastic. It, in September, we've launched uh, this um, initiative that includes a newsletter, which we send twice a month on this very topic. So on policy issues related to this innovation gap between East and West in Europe. Yeah, it's called The Widening, and it's it's available at, on, on our website at uh, sciencebusiness.net. Great. Okay. So really a very interesting um, situation there of a, a strong foundation, a lot of momentum and interest, but the devil in the details, it sounds like, of really making things happen more equitably and evenly across the, the region. You have mentioned briefly uh, just now Horizon Europe, the EU's key funding program for research and innovation through 2027. We have seen that Horizon Europe has been in the news quite a bit in recent months. I wonder if you might be able to offer us a little bit of a primer for individuals who may not have been following developments that closely. What do you think a well-informed international education professional should be aware of here in the final quarter of 2022 and some possible developments we should be watching out for with respect to Horizon Europe in the coming months as we move now into 2023? Well, Horizon Europe is the EU's flagship program for research innovation. It has a budget of 95.5 billion euros, and it covers a lot of topics. And it takes different forms and, uh, and shapes and ways of distributing that money. So it's split in three different pillars. The most important pillars are pillar one and two, 
Pillar one focuses on uh, blue sky research on, on bottom-up uh, research. Uh, and the second one, uh, it, it takes a more sectorial approach and it, it funds collaborative research innovation projects in health, agriculture, the bioeconomy, energy, and so on. So we're about to reach the halfway point of this program. So it started in early 2021. Uh, the European Commission is doing at the moment an assessment on how the program has been doing so far. So they're now gathering feedback through a public online consultation to evaluate the success of the, uh, the program that also covers the predecessor program, Horizon 2020, for which they want to do a, a more comprehensive analysis. And all this feedback will go into shaping the, the remaining part of the Horizon program, but also its uh, successor, which is due to start in January 2028. People who are interested in the program can follow very easily online, which, you know, the calls, the budgets, and so on. We even have a section on our website. Uh, we're trying to put together all information related to uh, Horizon Europe calls uh, and to the Horizon Europe work programs. But in terms of what we should expect in the coming months, we should pay attention to what's happening with the Commission's plan to roll out lump sum grants uh, in Horizon Europe. So that's a rather new approach to allocating funding, uh, because so far, the European Commission has been distributing research funding from its framework program through a very complex accounting system. And now the commission wants to simplify that to reduce accounting errors and to make sure that they spend the budget more efficiently. So I think they've already started with some calls where researchers can benefit from that, where they essentially get the money up front. Of course, it's a bit, a bit more complicated than that, but they get the money without having to report every single expense that they do. You know, every they don't have to keep track of every single receipt, plane ticket, taxi receipt, uh, whatever they needed to, to keep the research going. Uh, so that will offer a bit more flexibility. Another issue that's worth paying attention to is, and I think that's especially relevant for the uh, university sector, is the debate on research assessment reform. So universities and science associations together with public institutions are now debating ways to reform research evaluation. And the idea is to transition from a system that measures scientific success through publication metrics. Which journal have you published in? What's the impact factor? How many citations did you get? And so on. So they want to transition to a system that also takes into account qualitative uh, criteria. So now organizations can, can join the, the, it's called the Coalition for Research Assessment Reform, and they can join that to, to drive that debate further. And I think this debate will have a big, big, big impact on how universities in Europe will evaluate their academic staff and following from that, how the reward system will be reformed. So yeah, I think that these are two important issues that are worth following in the coming months and potentially years, uh, because in EU policy, it takes a lot of time for these things to be implemented. Exactly. And it does sound like those are areas in which there is um, you know, the potential for real 
um, really different experiences by stakeholders of this mega program that really yeah. provides the framework for research and innovation in Europe. Excellent. Okay, some things for us to be on the lookout for. You had to alluded earlier in our conversation to these very complicated um, geopolitical dynamics that we're also facing in the research and innovation space. So I have a question for you about this notion of science diplomacy. It's a term we hear on the lips of policymakers in different countries these days. From where you're sitting as you watch all these developments unfold, what does that term mean to you? And maybe building on some of the things you said earlier, are there some issues around science diplomacy dynamics within and across yep. Europe or more widely that you think are particularly important for us to pay attention to at the moment? Well, to be honest, I haven't paid much attention to science diplomacy before the war broke out. And it was quite surprising to see the immediate action taken by many research funders, research organizations, universities, and even governments uh, across Europe in, in the first few days after the invasion started. And I think um, Germany set the tone for that. It was the first country to announce science section, sanctions. So they cut ties uh, with Russia and immediately after the war started. I think it was less than 48 hours. And that's when we started paying attention to this because the norm used to be that science was one of the soft tools uh, used in the, in the diplomacy world to sweeten difficult relations between countries. And even during the Cold War, we have seen scientific cooperation between the Soviets and the West being kept alive despite the, the difficult situation. So together with the Olympics and chess tournaments, it was one of the few ways the two sides could talk to each other. But it seems that the war in Ukraine has changed that. So science has become like a tool for applying sanctions and for reinforcing sanctions. Well, not reinforcing sanctions, but rather to you know to complete the the package of of sanctions of economic sanctions that have been rolled out. So I think it's very important for the science and policy world to continue the debate on the role of science cooperation during war. I, I don't think it's a settled uh, debate. It's very difficult to answer to the question whether democratic countries should allow their researchers to cooperate with uh, colleagues from unfriendly uh, nations. So what do you do? Do you, do you implement a blanket ban? Do you set certain thresholds above which cooperation is no longer allowed? There's no rule book. So people are, are testing the limits of what can and what cannot be done. It may become even more complicated, let's say, if... Uh, there was a, a very interesting conference I attended uh, a few months ago, and the question came up, well, what should Europe do in terms of science actions if China decides to invade Taiwan? First of all, do we afford to cut ties with China, which has become a science superpower in its own right? This is something that needs to be carefully considered over the coming years. Seems like the hard questions keep coming. And you're yeah. right, a very interesting qualitative shift when we think about those Cold War dynamics and the dynamics today. And maybe it goes back to you know, what we said earlier about the, the rising stakes and complexity around these areas of research and innovation is so powerful. 
Okay, thank you. That's very important information for us to chew on. One final question for you. Our community has been closely following developments related to the European Universities Initiative since its inception. And of course, we note that in some fashion, all of those alliances have aspirations to make a significant impact in terms of research and innovation. As you are following this ongoing story of this initiative, how do you see the emerging alliances fitting into this wider context of research and innovation in Europe? The context is quite interesting because this year the European Commission has put forward a plan for, well, has put forward its university strategy. And that's, that includes a plan for a European degree. And the goal there is to boost transnational cooperation in Europe's higher education system. This strategy also includes a proposal to expand the pilot program for the European universities. So the commission wants to go from 41 alliances to 60 alliances that would involve more than 500 universities, uh, well, essentially over the next two years. It's not something new. The European countries have been working on reforming national structures to create a, a so-called single market for higher education. But there are multiple outstanding issues, uh, and they're related to accreditation and quality assurance of joint study programs. Which is, which is at the heart of transnational university collaboration. So there already is a system in place, for example, for, for joint accreditation, but its implementation is fragmented. Not all countries are doing it. So the, the ideas are, are there, uh, and the direction of travel has been set by this strategy published by the European Commission. But it remains to, to be seen how the strategy and, and how the university alliances will can be used as a testbed for a more convergent university landscape in, in the EU. It, it's a complicated landscape. Uh, you have governments, you have, there, there are 27 national governments that are in charge of it, their education policy. Then in, in federal countries like, like Germany, you have other sub-jurisdictions that are in charge of their own education policy. So there are different layers of complexity here, and it'll take a, a while for the EU to figure that out. I'm, I'm curious how all this will unfold in, in the coming years. It is interesting. I feel like the momentum has been toward bigger is better in many things in relation to at least you know, research and innovation objectives and aspirations. So in my mind, the, you know, the idea of the alliances is compelling in the sense that it's trying to bring resources together. But as you say, then allowing the systems to kind of get out of the way of that work and let that happen seems to be the, the next important step or stage in the process. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, another issue with the alliances is how do we fund them? So who will pick up the baton, so to speak, after the EU money runs out? So it's it's a question of financial sustainability as well, because they, these alliances require uh, a bit of financial aid to keep going. To be sure. Well, Florin, it sounds like in your job as a journalist, you have a really exciting opportunity to ask a lot of the key questions that we've just, just lightly touched on here. It's been a real delight for me to be able to ask you some questions today. Thank you really for your time and for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, it's been a bit strange for me to being on the receiving end of questions, but it, it was a nice experience and I'm 
forward to repeating it. Thanks again. Bye-bye. That was Florin Zubashku, Executive Editor at Science Business. Links to his organization and other resources connected to discussions of research and innovation can be found in our session notes for this episode. We are publishing this episode in mid-November 2022, and of course, it's by no means too early to look ahead to 2023. The EAE will be bringing many exciting things your way in the new year, including the EAE Community Summit on March 8th and 9th. The theme for the summit is Thriving in Complexity, and we'll explore various approaches to effective living, learning, and leading in our field as we navigate the complex realities of our time. Registration for the Community Summit will open early next year, and importantly, it's free for EAE members. Speaking of EAE members, membership for 2023 will open next week. If you and the colleagues you work with could benefit from an EAE membership, the support of the EAE community, and discounts on EAE events, then we hope you'll take a look at the group memberships on offer. Pricing and all the details are available on the EAE website. That's www.eae.org. Whether you're an EAE member or not, thanks for being a listener of the EAE podcast. Our next episode comes your way in two weeks. Until then, all good wishes to you from the EAE.